You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Well, in just a little little time, when uh, actually just about the time I get back from India, we get back from India, we're going to be starting into an Advent series. And, and this year we've, we've chosen to focus uh, Advent on uh, the, the theme, Jesus, Hope of the Nations, and we're going to be featuring different nations in that time four weeks before Christmas we're going to be you're going to be hearing a lot about needs and through a Christmas card kind of campaign that Heather's been working on you're going to hear about how you can contribute to some of those needs around the world Uh, you're going to be hearing songs of worship and a lot in our time together that's going to focus us on the nations and we pray that God will just uh, cause us to have a, a global mindset because of that that can pray for the nations. And uh, as I was thinking about that, I was, I was thinking about how about that time, probably a lot of us in our homes are going to be getting ready to put up a Christmas tree, right? And uh, you'll get your lights and your tinsel and your ornaments out and you'll put it on your tree. And and uh, we, we have that tradition in our family. And it's interesting because... Uh, over the years, we've, we've got ornaments that have come from our parents. We've got ornaments that the kids have made. And over the years, uh, remind us of that age bracket. And we've got uh, ornaments from Bolivia when we lived there and so on. And so the, the Christmas tree actually serves not only as this, in, this opportunity to, to prepare for the birth of Jesus in that way and get our hearts focused that, but it's this nostalgic kind of of reminder of our family journey and how faithful God has been throughout those years in our family. And I begin to sharing about the Christmas tree a little bit because I want you to keep that image in your mind just for a moment as we, as we get ready to look at a passage in Philippians chapter 3 that Paul is going to be talking about. He's talking about what it is about that, what it is authentic faith and religion and what is a counterfeit faith and religion. And I would like you to think of this this way, that, that the, the counterfeit faith and religion is really like a Christmas tree, and that true, authentic, spiritual religion and faith in Jesus is about a fruit tree. So here we have two trees, and if you can imagine that, the Christmas tree is adorned, and it's got these things that we put on the outside. We attach things to branches, But we see on a fruit tree that is very different. The things that are attached to the branches are organically growing there because it's part of the nature of that tree to grow that fruit. And I want you to think about that because the danger, in fact, I would say that the gravity of your life and the default setting of your life is to go towards more of the Christmas tree spirituality than the fruit tree spirituality. And the Bible calls that the flesh. The Bible says that every one of us, even after we are regenerate and we receive the Lord God through Jesus Christ and faith in Him and we're given a new nature, even then, though we have a new nature, that component called sin, the flesh, yet lives in us until we put this body aside and then are given a new, a new body and absolutely delivered from the very presence of sin. And so you see that the default setting, if you're not spiritually minded to live according to the law of, of life in Christ Jesus instead of the law of sin and death, 
that Romans 8 talks about, your default setting is to hang on your life those adornments, those virtues, those attitudes, those things that you think are becoming of what it means to be Christian. And so you'll work on being more loving and you'll work on being more forgiving and you'll work on on giving and being merciful and all the things. But you see, in so doing, you could be falling into this self-righteousness, self-confidence, and not letting the Holy Spirit of God really produce the fruit he wants to on your life. You see, the difference is incredibly stark. Because you see, the life that God really has for you is not a life of outward and external adornment, trying to conform outwardly to something. It's a life of inner transformation that the Holy Spirit, by His nature in you, actually produces the fruit upon your branches in your life that is absolutely genuine. It's God. It's Jesus in you. And there's not, that's why Paul, when he talks about the Christian life, the, the thing that he most liked to talk about was union with Christ. In Christ. He's in you and you're in him. He's producing that fruit. And so if the, with that metaphor in your mind, would you turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> and uh, let's listen to what Paul has to say here. <clears throat> excuse me, about, about true righteousness. And how we stand before God, how we live out our, our faith. Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to begin with verse 1. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand now as I read God's word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless." But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Thank you. You'll notice in your insert in your bulletin, that pink piece of paper, that there are three things that I'd like to comment on. And the first thing that I would like to say from verses 1 to 4 is simply that Paul here identifies and asks us to discern between counterfeit and authentic faith or religion. You'll notice in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins with the word finally. Kind of an odd word to be using when you're only halfway through your letter. <laughs> 
kind of an important thing for preachers to remember, not to say finally too early, uh, because everybody starts uh, salivating for lunch, and it's not that time yet. Actually, this word might actually mean moreover or furthermore, so it might be lost in translation. But the issue that he's pointing to is this matter of rejoicing, finally rejoice in the Lord. And then by the Holy Spirit's leading, he gets sidetracked because there's some stuff he has to say, and he doesn't come back to the theme of rejoicing until chapter 4, verse 4, in his concluding comments. Finally, he says... And so in between there, what is it all about? Well, it's it's a lot about a warning. And the warning comes out in chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, watch out for those dogs, those who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Paul here is identifying a reality that existed in the church at Philippi, a group of false teachers. And they were false teachers, sometimes called Judaizers. They, they, They had this idea... Did they believe in Jesus? Yes, to a degree, sort of. But they had this equation that it was Jesus plus observance to Old Testament Testament ceremonial law, or Jesus plus circumcision, or Jesus plus this kind of observance of the Sabbath, and so on. And so Paul is saying to them, watch out, That 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 is heresy, that is dangerous, and so Paul uses very strong languages. In fact, he, he says something here that is actually a play on words. One letter in the Greek text, peritome or keratome, makes the difference between circumcision, which was the Old Testament right after, the, after Abraham, of all who are part of the sons of faith, this Old Testament sign that ended with the coming of Christ, in that sense. And he's, it literally means, the circumcision word means to cut around And Paul is using a one-letter word difference to say that actually it's mutilate. That's the word it means, mutilate. So Paul is is in a word play saying to the Philippians, there are people that that use this imagery and try to call you back to Old Testament observance in addition to the grace found in faith in Jesus Christ. But they're mutilating, they're mutilating the gospel. Paul was really, really saying that. They're, they're, they're destroying things. It is not Jesus plus and, and all the things that you need to do. It is Jesus, him alone. The reformers talked about faith alone in Christ alone. And so in this passage of scripture, Paul is earnest. And so he, he describes counterfeit and, and authentic faith. And look what he says in verse 3. Very simple things. You see, the flesh will always lead a counterfeit faith to emphasize the externals. You will be led to try and emphasize the externals of your faith and, and ignore some of the heart issues. And genuine spiritual religion that Jesus Christ founded for us is all about the heart. It's all about the heart. And so he says, first of all, we who worship by the Spirit of God. You see, worship in the Old Testament was all about a place, Jerusalem, the temple. But we who worship by the Spirit of God, it's all about the heart. We who glory in Christ Jesus is the second sign of authenticity. Glory in Christ Jesus. You see, the false teachers, did they glory in Christ Jesus? No, they didn't glory. Did they have him as part of the equation? Yes. 
But you see, if you were to describe to somebody else a list of all your passions in life, and you were to start at the top with your passion, that you're, and then you were to keep on listing your passions, after two eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper, do you think that first one is your passion anymore? I would say you're not passionate about anything. You got way too much on your list to be passionate. Paul, in looking in his thesaurus for a word that would describe what Jesus means to him, comes up with this word glory. Why? Because it's, it's a word that actually has no real good translation in English. It means that, that you boast in, you live for, you obsess over Jesus. He's everything. And so we glory in Christ Jesus. And as they say in Spanish, punto. Nothing else, nothing more, full stop. There's nothing that can be added. Next time you come before God guilty, having sinned, feeling like you can't measure up, feeling like you're not being sanctified, you feel like it's taking so long, I want you to remind yourself that the grace of Christ has already covered all that you are lacking in. He is that for you and I. Blood-bought children of God. And we offend the cross and we offend the God of grace if we are going to put any confidence in the flesh. That's the third point of true religion and true faith is it putting no confidence in the flesh. I read an author this past week that said the, the, the manifestations of the flesh are mostly about the heart. Unbelief, doubt, Pride, independence, and fear. That's the flesh. We can't put any confidence in the flesh. What is it? It's it's anything that you would add to Jesus for your own sense of self-worth or significance or standing before God or righteousness. Whatever it is might be, an upbringing, an education, a social standing, a position, a title, a wealth... Anything at all apart from Christ. Our, our faith is seldom put to the test where, where God strips that away. But when that happens, whether by choice or by, by obligation, when, when it, that stuff we trust in, we put confidence in the flesh for self-merit, when that's stripped away, then, then in humility we have an opportunity to really grow in faith. Really grow in faith. I remember when I was pastoring my first church, and uh, I remember it was early in my ministry when I realized there's something in me that really likes the approval of men. There's something in me that puts confidence in the flesh because I get to hear the strokes, good sermon. And when someone would come to the door and say, well, I don't agree with you on that one, wanting to adjust, feeling shaken. What is it in you? What is it that you substitute for Jesus being your all in all? What is it that rocks your world? What is it that you tend to, to build your house on of sinking sand? What is it that you're going to have to offer up one day? Maybe today at the communion table, you'll offer it up. You'll say, Lord, I want to stand on Christ, the solid rock. And, and here I've been standing on shifting sand, sinking sand. Do I wholly lean on Jesus' name? 
The second thing that Paul says in this passage, I'd like to draw your attention to in verses 4 to 6, and, and that is deciding consciously not to trust in your own carnal confidence. And Paul has an interesting way of doing that. Paul has a way of, of uh, saying that he, he's arguing that if anybody has any reason to put confidence in the flesh, he should be the guy. So he's, he's kind of presenting his case in this kind of false boasting way. And so he says, actually, seven credentials. He, he lists seven ways. Four of them are inherent. Three of them are achieved. And, and we have our own inherent and achieved ways of sort of boosting our ego and presenting our self-confidence before God. So if Paul says, the inherited ones circumcised on the eighth day, a family that lived to the letter of the law, of the people of Israel, a true Israelite, true birthright, right from the patriarchs, a tribe of Benjamin, that, that special son of Jacob and Rachel. You know, the tribe of Benjamin, the, the guy that came out of Benjamin was the first king of Israel. He's priding here, he's boasting in the flesh. Here, Hebrew of Hebrews, I came from a Hebrew-speaking family. And when I was just old enough, my parents sent me off to Gamaliel to study under the Hebrew uh, scholar and rabbi. And then the attained or achieved merit, he said, uh, in regard to the law of Pharisees, saying that he lived among the strictest of all groups, the Pharisees. That he was, in terms of zeal, persecuting the church. He, went, he was one of those that were defending the, the true Judaism by going and, and attacking those sects and those, those little groups like the Christian, Christ ones and so on. And then, thirdly, he says, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. In terms of all the rules that the Pharisees added to the law of Moses to keep from ever, ever violating one of those laws, he said, I, I was spotless, I was blameless. I fasted more. Then, then required, I prayed more than I needed to. I studied more than I needed to. I did more acts of mercy. I kept the law better. If there was anybody that was on the top of the heap in terms of self-righteousness, could stand before God, Paul was it. He was saying that. And that's where he's at. And then, and then something happened in his life that just completely rocked his world. We start to read about it in Acts chapter 7, where in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being martyred. You remember the story? And, they, and, and on those that were killing Stephen, they, they took their outer garments and they laid them at the feet of Saul, who was watching. And in chapter 8, Saul, who became Paul later on, emerges as the leader of that group that was persecuting Christians. And one day when he was on the road to Damascus, getting ready to drag more Christians out of their homes and bring them before the temple, temple priests and so on, uh, Jesus met him. Jesus himself, the risen Christ, met Paul on the road to Damascus. And he said the famous words, you can read about them in Acts. Saul, Saul, why? Why do you persecute me? And we, we forget the last part of that. And then, the, and then Jesus said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Do you remember that? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Some commentators think that the goads were maybe a fixed piece of, of uh, wood so that the animal could not kick back very far. Some think it was the poking, prodding sticks that the shepherds used to keep them moving along. And, and the animals, of course, would, when they get poked or, or touch that wood, they'd kick back. 
You see, that's a picture of Paul. He was kicking against the goads. He was rebelling. He was resisting the the law of God and, and the spirit of God. And that's a good picture also of the flesh that lives in you and I. You and I have that element within us. You can read about it in Romans 7 in Paul's experience. We have that element in us that wants to kick against God. You know the right thing to do in the moment. You know what it is to forgive or what it is to bear with someone else in love or what it is to take the initiative in restoring a relationship. You know the right thing to do. But there's something in you that kicks against the goads. You resist God. You, you push away God's spirit. You quench his spirit. We know what that's like. Paul had to, had to tally things up. Paul had to take stock and inventory. He realized the spirit of Paul was rebellion. You see, rebellion does not look, have to look like a revolting, carousing kind of waywardness. Rebellion can look very religious, as in Paul's case. Very religious. But in the end, what it does is it says, I don't want it. And I don't need it. The righteousness of God that was bought and paid for in full at the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't need it. I don't want it. I'm okay without it. And so Paul goes into the last part of his message and, and he goes into describing then having taken stock of all of his pedigree and status and all that he's profited from, all the self-righteousness, all the obedience, all the sacrifice. And he says, whatever, whatever, whatever was to my profit, I now, because I know Jesus, consider it all loss for the sake of knowing Christ, being found in him. In fact, he goes on to say that I consider it dung and and, and that word is a little more graphic in the original text to have to do with refuse, waste. I consider it dung. You know, and it was not until Friday in, in studying this that I saw something new in this passage that I did not fully understand. And, and the, the thing that I saw in this passage that I didn't fully understand was this, that I thought that perhaps what Paul was saying that that all of his righteousness that he did in his own flesh, putting confidence in the flesh, was not adding anything to his salvation. He's not just saying that. He's actually saying that all of the things that he had done prior to meeting Christ were actually detracting from his salvation. I like the way Sinclair Ferguson describes it in his commentary. He says, imagine that you have a checking account and that you are making deposits in your checking account perhaps all month or all year. And every time you save up, you sacrifice, you put in a deposit, and then, and then say that at the end of the month or the year, you, you get your statement. And you look at your statement and your, draw, your jaw drops because every, everything that you thought was a deposit is recorded as a debit, as a withdrawal. And instead of making all this headway in your savings, you're actually worse off. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, everything that I saw as gain in my life actually was loss. 
Because it was, you see, keeping me from seeing my desperate need for Jesus Christ alone. Only Christ. That's the message of Paul here. And so Paul came to that place of tallying up, doing the spiritual inventory, and seeing that if he had Jesus, didn't need anything else. And if he didn't have Christ, all the rest did not matter. As you and I do a spiritual inventory right now, as we just take stock of where we stand, of what what confidence we might be placing in the flesh, I would encourage you to examine your heart. That's That's where it matters. And as you come before the table of the Lord right now, examine if the Lord is asking you to lay something down. As that famous hymn says, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I love that one verse. It says, But wholly lean on Jesus' name. I'm going to ask right now that those who are helping to lead the Lord's Supper with me would come and join me at the front.